0: Welcome to The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scherer.
1: And I'm Michael Broadcorp.
0: And we are here tonight with an extra special podcast. We are coming to you live following the Republican presidential debate. We're super grateful for those of you who are joining us tonight as uh, we break down this momentous event. Um, For those of you joining after the fact, I'm jealous that you went to bed at a decent time because it's 10.15 and officially past our bedtimes. But we are powering through, fired up after an exciting two-hour debate with eight Republican candidates for president. We have three incredible panelists joining us tonight for this breakdown. First, we are um, start by welcoming back to the podcast, Representative Walter Hudson. Representative Hudson first joined us back in April and is a rare second-time guest. As a reminder, Hudson was elected in 2022 and just completed his first session in the Minnesota House, serving the Albertville, Otsego, and St. Michael area. Next up is GOP strategist, operative, and personal friend, John Rouleau. John and I first met while serving on the board of our local BPOU in St. Paul, and now have baby boys who were born within a week of each other. John has long been active in Republican politics and currently serves as the executive director of the Minnesota Jobs Coalition. And our third panelist tonight is another friend who has spent a number of years as a pro in the Republican messaging and communications world, Priya Samsandar. Priya worked for the state party and recently spent nearly five years as the Midwest Regional Communications Director for the Republican National Committee. For full disclosure, Priya is currently working on behalf of Nikki Haley's presidential super PAC. Grab another cup of coffee and buckle up because we cannot wait to dive into the good, the bad, and maybe even the ugly tonight as we break down all things Republican presidential debate. As you follow along, we welcome you to head to X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, and share your thoughts with us by tagging us at BB BBBreakPod. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the show. So we are going to kick things off tonight. Uh, We are grateful for the three of you being with us. We're going to do a quick round-robin with brief introductions and your initial two-ish minutes on what you thought of the general, what you thought of the debate comments. And then we'll dive into the weeds after this. Representative Hudson, will you kick us off?
2: Yeah, sure. So I come from a background in grassroots activism. I've been involved in and around the party for about 15 years since the advent of the Tea Party. Um, And it's my first term as a state representative. And so that's kind of the perspective that I'm bringing to this. And, you know, my my short first impression of how the debate went tonight is you had one job, guys. You had one job, and your job was to demonstrate to Republican primary voters that Donald Trump should not be the nominee in 2024. And they didn't even try from what I saw to make that case, which is a really bizarre thing to be saying in the aftermath of a unique opportunity um to elevate any one of their campaigns by knocking out the guy who's in, in the front end. Great. John. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh you know,
3: watching that debate, it really was kind of interesting to see the different route that it went uh, to build a little bit on what Representative Hudson said. It took 57 minutes before Donald Trump came up on that debate. Uh, that is when they got around, to, they came back from that commercial break, got to the first question about Donald Trump. Uh, really, you know, looking at uh, kind of heading into the debate, I think Governor DeSantis really had the highest uh, yeah, the highest stakes uh, in that debate, I think, tonight. Uh, he needed to have an opportunity to show donors, uh, to show the grassroots that his campaign was still worth being behind. You know, He's a guy who had a lot of hype before he got into the race. Uh, he had a lot of hype kind of getting out into the front, raised a lot of money. Uh, and I think in a series of kind of missteps leading up to the debate, uh, he really had a lot to live up to. Uh, And I'll be curious to see if you guys think that he uh, met that match when uh, we get around to discussing a little bit more.
0: And Priya. Thanks. Uh, You know,
4: this debate is the first real opportunity for Americans across the country to take a first real hard look at all of these candidates And for really Republicans to make that case that not only are they one, the best candidate to beat Joe Biden next November, but this is also their opportunity to make the case that they are the candidate to take on Donald Trump, Uh, obviously. We had two hours to take a look and watch these candidates talk about a a number of issues, uh, all the way from UFOs to the border to uh, the economy and foreign policy. And and we saw a lot of things happen. And obviously, we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, But overall, I think this was a a good, real opportunity for Americans. I'm very excited to see what the overall conversation looks like over the next couple of days. But uh, there were clear winners and losers tonight.
0: Well, before we get into the winners and losers, let's take a, a tip from the moderators here. Quick raise of hands if you think the moderators did a better job than they normally do. Oh, no hands going up. Oh, okay. Okay. We got some yeah. 50-50s. All right. Well, maybe we'll get into that a little bit more. So, Priya, you set, set us up perfectly. We're going to start off with the winners tonight. We're going to go around the horn and let's discuss whatever who everybody thought the top three candidates are following the debate or, or who performed the best in the debate, who came out on top, exceeded expectations, had key moments, and just overall proved them as a quality candidate tonight. John, let's start with you.
3: Yeah. Uh, so yeah, debates are uh, you know, a lot of series of little moments that kind of build up and it's something that you can take away with you. Uh, and I think sometimes the winners are the people who don't have any of those at all. Uh, so tonight, uh, my three winners, I think, might be a little bit of a surprise to people. But I'm going to say that Nikki Haley had a great night. Uh, I think that she uh, really kind of rose to the moment. Uh, but my other two winners are two people who weren't on that stage. And it's Donald Trump and it's Joe Biden. Uh, you know, Joe Biden is the incumbent Democratic president that all of these folks want to run against. And frankly, they spent more time arguing and bickering amongst themselves than they did holding him accountable for his failed record, uh, for the inflation that is out of control and remains out of control, for the crime that still is much higher than it was when he took office. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think that he basically made it out of this debate unscathed uh, and didn't see anybody who showed that they could uh, really hold him accountable for his failed record.
0: All righty. Bria, your thoughts on the top three. Obviously,
4: as Becky kind of mentioned, I do work for the Nikki Haley Siever Pack. But I will say, even as somebody who does work for her, I would say that she did come out on top. And I think anyone who was watching this debate would absolutely agree. She had so many key moments. I mean, that opening line where she just came out swinging at not only the people on that debate stage, but at Donald Trump as well. If you notice throughout the two-hour debate, There were a number of opportunities where we saw Chris Christie, Asa Hutchins take swings at Donald Trump, and they got booed. Nikki Haley is the only candidate on that stage tonight who took swings at Donald Trump on multiple occasions and was applauded. And I think that is something that folks need to keep an eye on, because if we're talking about that, this presidential debate being one that is kicking off. A series of opportunities for these candidates to show the American people that uh they have what it takes to take on Joe or Joe Biden and Donald Trump next November. And it's when we start the caucuses and the primary process uh come January. Nikki Haley did a very good job making that case tonight. Uh, I would also argue that Mike Pence did a much better than expected job tonight. I, I think when you think about Mike Pence and You know, when I worked at the RNC back in 2020, I had the opportunity to see Mike Pence on the campaign trail. You kind of see a more docile figure is, I guess is probably a good word to describe him. He's very soft-spoken, very quiet. You don't really expect him to kind of get his hackles up. And that's exactly what he did tonight. Uh, He went after Vivac on a number of occasions. He wasn't afraid to push back. And that's something we haven't seen from Mike Pence before. So that was a very interesting turn. Um, You know, again, uh, I'm trying to be quite honest, struggling to figure out who that third person was. Um, I think there are a lot of losers on that debate stage tonight. Uh, so uh, I'll keep it to my top two because I can't even think of a third one at the
0: moment. <laughs> we'll take it. Representative. Well, uh,
2: to add some credibility to uh, Preya's take, uh, I will say that Nikki Haley is on my list. She's not on the first position, though. Um, We'll get to her in order. So the top of my list, and I'll explain my reasoning here, um, and let me just say at the outset, I don't think anybody on that debate stage tonight was like a dramatic standout um, who did extraordinarily better than anybody else. Um, Overall, it was a very underwhelming two hours um, from my perspective. But we got to come up with a top three, right? So my number one would be Vivek Ramaswamy. And the reason why is because I think from the perspective of the average Republican primary voter who's just starting to tune into the process now, he accomplished the mission of putting his name in people's heads. Like people responded um, very enthusiastically and emotionally to a lot of the messaging that he had on offer, which is was, was a very Trump-like kind of populist message about how average, normal, productive, and virtuous people are being left behind under the Biden economy and under Bidenomics. Um, he, he did not, he, he failed, to, he wasn't consistent throughout his performance, um, especially in fending off a lot of the attacks that came his way uh, by the likes of Mike Pence. Uh, but he, I think he did potentially gain the most uh, from any of the candidates on the, the debate, debate stage tonight. Uh, my number two would be DeSantis. And I would love to be able to say that it's because he blew me away with his messaging um, and he was on point and he was really impressive tonight. The reason why he's my number two is because he didn't do any damage to himself. Like, I think that he is in exactly the same place coming out of this that he was going into it, which is not what he needed. That not sh- that should not have been his goal, um, but he at least achieved that. And so good on him. And my number three would be Nikki Haley because, you know, and and going into this, Nikki Haley is not on my radar as somebody who I have with, with apologies to Brea, um, any intention or interest in supporting for the Republican nomination. And that's what impresses me is that in spite of that, she made points tonight that caught my attention that, that had me nodding and agreeing with her. And respecting her experience and what she had to say, and she she was a competent contender on that debate stage. She, I think of all the candidates, she demonstrated the best debate proficiency, um, which certainly counts for something.
0: All right, and my illustrious co-host Michael, what do you think on on the top three performances tonight?
1: Number one, I think that the top performance tonight on the stage. I got to go with Nikki Haley. Um, I was impressed by her performance tonight. I was impressed by her debate style and her depth of, of the issues and her willingness to push back. I also, I think it was good contrast with the other candidates. Um, I think Donald Trump was also, who wasn't on the stage tonight. I think he was a big winner. Um, I, I agree with representative Hudson, uh, that, uh, overall, um, I think it's a. There was a little bit of. I think there was some, some. A little bit of underwhelming, to say the least, on on some of the overall debate. I think Trump cast a pretty big shadow over the debate tonight, and so I think he was a big winner because he wasn't there. Um, I would also say that uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Christie, Chris Christie. Um, he did a good job in terms of poking um, and and setting framing up the debate. He's shown himself to be a real scrappy fighter. I have concerns about his longevity in terms of issues. And can he, can he be a candidate other than the anti-Trump foil? Um, but those three candidates are the ones that I think uh, two that were on the stage, one that wasn't um, that I think won tonight. Um, I'll have more to say when we get to, to those who didn't win, but that's my perspective right now. And, and, and very insightful comments from all of you. Um, and I'm, I benefited from going last, so thank you for that opportunity.
0: Well, hey, I'll throw I'll throw mine in as well, and I gotta say, Michael. It,
1: oh, I'm sorry, usually, Becky. That's right. You get, usually, usually you're last.
0: a rule follower here, and you threw out like a John did. You know the Trump Biden thing. I mean, this was about who who participated, but I'll give you guys a pass. We'll we'll come back and chat about that after we get to the losers. I'm gonna I'm gonna double down unanimous for for all five of us here. Haley crushed it, came out swinging. Um, I think she really. Obviously, as the only woman on the stage really showed her showed herself on women's issues and being a voice for for women and suburban women who we really need, you know, across the country to to come out and and come over to the red side. I think she did great. I think she did also a really good job. I was really impressed with how she worked to differentiate herself from the congressional and administrative Republicans um, who she kind of, you know, made sure to tie into what Biden was passing, what the Democrats in Congress were passing. So um, I she i've always been a fan but she really really crushed it tonight um chris christie is someone who i've i've long been a fan of i think he did a good job um his usual sassy self you know showing he's he's certainly a, a not trumper um and so i think that he had some really good attack lines there and then for number three, um, I I, you know, thought that I was gonna be the rule breaker here a little bit by having almost a tie for my number three. Um, if I have to do a number three, I'm gonna give it a tie um to Pence and Burgum. I think Bergum really, you know, he didn't get a whole lot of speaking time, but I think he did kind of step up when he when he had the mic. So um, oh Michael, you got something to say.
1: I'm just I forgot he was on the stage. He had such an <laughs> underwhelming performance. it's uh, surprising, but but go ahead. I, I wanna, you know. I forget that we're on camera now, so people can see my reaction. Yeah, so yeah you're gonna see sure some, can. You're gonna see the normal smirking and eye rolling that I do a lot of times, generally confined to the food takes. But I forgot that I gotta, I gotta uh, have a little bit of a poker face because we're live tonight.
0: Uh, before we get into the losers, I want to throw it to Representative Hudson or Priya and, and see, um, you know, John, one of his winners that he he called out was was President Biden. Do you think that with the performance of the eight Republicans on on the stage tonight, Biden did, um, you know, it w- did come out as a winner of the debate?
4: I can go for your, if we Go you for want. it. Uh, Honestly, I don't think this debate was about Biden. I think in the long term, it is going to be about Biden. And ultimately, the goal is to beat Biden. But I think this debate, this first debate is about introducing these eight candidates to the American people. We have to realize, I mean, all of us are from Minnesota here. So let's take a second and realize we have three months of great weather here in the Midwest. Folks are at their cabins every weekend. They're at the lake they're spending time with family, they're going on vacations. Right now, we're getting ready for back to school. We're getting ready for the state fair to start up. Folks aren't paying attention. They haven't been paying attention all year. This is the first real opportunity that Americans are going to have an opportunity to see these candidates at face value and hear exactly what they stand for, what they don't. And they don't need to hear so much about Joe Biden because Joe Biden does plenty of that on his own, okay? We know that he spent a third of his presidency on vacation that's not that's not an issue that we need to contend with people see it every week they go to the gas station and they see that gas prices are at a 10 month high they go to the grocery store and see that eggs are expensive again milk is expensive bread is expensive They don't need to be told that. They already know that. They know that they're spending more on bills and groceries and food and rent and mortgage. They know that they can't buy a home because the Fed keeps hiking uh, the interest rate up. They see all of these things. They don't need to be told what they already know. It's like living in an echo chamber. What they need to know is what these different candidates can offer to them. And that is what the goal of tonight was. It was about differentiating themselves from one another and about creating an opportunity to stand out from the rest. That is what tonight was about it wasn't about joe biden it was about them
2: Uh, i'll broaden the premise of the question a little bit um and at first I'll, i'll answer directly and say that i think that the only way that joe biden potentially could have lost in any meaningful way tonight would have been if one of the candidates had demonstrated effectively that Donald Trump should not be the nominee in 2024, because I think that the best chance that Joe Biden has of being reelected, assuming that he is the Democrat nominee, is if he's going head to head with Donald Trump. And I think there's a lot of uh, objective analysis to back that up. And so from Joe Biden's perspective, really the only way this night could have gone poorly for him is if somebody had taken a real big bite out of Trump's dominance in this primary field, and I don't think that was achieved. Um, I think that was the primary job that all these candidates had when they showed up tonight was to demonstrate that Donald Trump, the front runner by quite a margin, should not be the nominee. Secondarily, for everybody not named DeSantis on that stage, their job was to demonstrate that he shouldn't be the candidate either. And I did not feel as though any of them, like I said, DeSantis was my number two in the top three simply because I felt like he did no harm and he endured no harm. He's in exactly the same position now uh, as I see it as he was going in tonight. Um, and of course, the the third um, objective would be to to take a bite out of Joe Biden. But again, I feel as though that's linked to the first job, which is taking a bite out of Donald Trump. And that didn't happen tonight. Well, I think oh, go ahead for me when I look at this,
3: you know, a lot of this is about tactics, right? And in Republican primaries, we see candidates run to the right of each other all the time, right? And it's Uh, an attempt to see who can uh, appeal to the base the most. And my theory is and always will be that the best way to be the most conservative candidate on that stage is to be more conservative than the Democrat that you're running against and hold them accountable. You can start to act as if that is your opponent because long-term that is going to be your opponent. So you don't necessarily have to be more conservative than DeSantis on an issue or uh Vivek on an issue. If you can go and say, This is where Joe Biden has failed, and you start to uh really sell the conservative narrative about that. Instead of we, you know, so often in Republican races, we get bogged down in arguing over the last five percent. Uh, and we want to go and uh, you know, we see it even down at the BPOU level, right? We're passing resolutions and we're debating, does this word here mean this? And yeah, we're talking about our platform. Uh, and really, this was an opportunity for folks to get out there and show that they have the ability to lead, the ability to stand up to Joe Biden, the ability to stand up to Donald Trump. Uh, and the way that you uh, can convince people that you're presidential is by acting presidentially. Uh, and I think that going against Biden is a great way to do that. Uh, and I think that that was a missed
1: opportunity. Michael. Michael. I want to ask the the panel here, ask the group that we have here, what do you think? What should have been the approach of the candidates on the stage tonight about Donald Trump and him not being on stage? There was a direct question asked. They describe it as kind of the the elephant in the room. Um, but what should have been the candidates' role or response to the fact that Donald Trump wasn't there?
2: I think that someone would have this would have been an extremely risky move what i'm about to describe um but i think it has the virtue of being necessary (laughs) okay uh you need to make the case that donald trump cannot win in 2024 you need to make the case and you you need to do it in such a way that it doesn't come off as you attacking donald trump or um lending credence or credibility to those who are engaged in what some have described as the lawfare attacks against him and that's a very difficult small needle to thread but it is a necessary component if you're going to make the case that Donald Trump shouldn't be the nominee the only grounds that i see on which you can make that case is this guy cannot will not become the next president of the united states he will not be reelected because He, the the unique circumstances that he finds himself in, regardless of the merits of the the indictments and what you think about the political motivations of them, there's a very high chance that he's not even going to be on the ballot in multiple states because these secretaries of state are going to take the opportunity, uh, based upon whatever their state laws happen to be, to make the claim that he's not qualified to be on their ballots. How can you have a Republican nominee for president? Who is it on the ballot? Um, and so it would have been difficult for somebody to make that case. I don't know if the case I just made, the way I just articulated it, would go over particularly well in that room. Um, but it is a tough truth, a hard truth that uh, folks on our side need to be willing to, to hear. And and it's it's an analysis that's completely independent of how you feel about Donald Trump. It's just a cold, hard electoral reality. Others um, that want to answer
4: I I guess I can go next. Um, You know, to uh, Representative Hudson's point, you talk about, one, how it's going to go over in that room. I think we did see how it goes over in that room when you go a little too far to the left uh, and, and hit Donald Trump a little too hard. We saw that with Asa Hutchinson. We saw that with Chris Christie. They got booed very loudly. And I can tell you, I've been to Iowa. I lived there. That room was not filled with hundred percent Trump supporters, but it definitely sounded like it when they started booing. You have to realize that the Democrats gave Donald Trump the greatest gift on planet earth when they indicted him four times because they made him a martyr. And when you make that argument about secretaries of state taking him off the ballot because of his legal problems, you are furthering that martyrdom because It's not going to be red states that are going to be taking him off the ballot. It's going to be Illinois and Minnesota and Wisconsin and all of these blue states. And Donald Trump is going to point his finger and say, look at the big, bad Democrats, Look at them trying to rig this election. Look at what they're doing to me. They did it in 2016. They're trying to do it again in 2020, uh, and they're doing it again in 2024. It only adds fuel to the flame, so you definitely can't go that route. I think Nikki Haley probably did the best job in trying to make that claim tonight because she actually came out and said it's about electability, and he cannot get elected.
0: John?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's the impossible question to answer right you've got uh you know we're operating in kind of a you know post-reality world uh and how do you make an argument about that when 70 percent of donald trump's voters uh believe that he is the only one who tells them the truth that he is you know trusted by over 30 percent more than these folks religious leaders Right, that they believe Donald Trump is more likely to tell them the truth than their pastor. You know, if you had told me that was going to be the Republican primary electorate a decade ago, that pastors would be less trusted than a politician from New York, yeah, I would have thought you were crazy. Uh, but they trust him ten points more than their family members. Uh, so making that argument uh, really requires you to find a way. Uh, to do it in a way where he can't come back and say they're lying to you because that's the answer. Uh, And frankly, I think tonight, you know, what I would have done if I was uh, one of those uh, advising a candidate on that stage uh, would be to say, to use Donald Trump's words against him. There's a long uh, track record of Donald Trump goading people into debating, calling people who don't debate weak, calling them cowards. Uh, talking about how only losers don't debate. Uh, And frankly, that's the route that I would have gone is using his own words against him, uh, preferably with video so that people can't say that you just made it up. Uh, But that's, again, a very hard thing to do on the stage. And it's probably best left to a super PAC rather than a campaign and a candidate on that stage.
0: I do want to come back to Trump a, a little bit later, um, but do want to make sure that we we kind of circle us back to the performances on the on the debate stage tonight, um, and let's go into with the good comes the bad, right? So we're going to do another round robin here, this time with everybody who they thought were in the bottom three, who missed opportunities, who struggled with facts, couldn't articulate themselves in a matter that a top-tier presidential candidate needs to do. Um, this time, let's uh, start with Priya.
4: Okay. Uh, So I actually have three for this one. Uh, So first of all, I would say DeSantis. This was a huge missed opportunity for him after, I think we're on reboot number six, seven of his campaign. Uh, This was kind of his moment to show not only uh, his supporters, but more importantly, the donors that are backing his campaign, that he has what it takes to take on Donald Trump. And he couldn't take on The seven other candidates on that debate stage, I think out of the two hours that I watched that full debate, I forgot he was on that debate stage half of the time. He was unmemorable. It was pretty forgettable. And the arguments that he did make were were so so. Um, In fact, I I think I have to go back and look and see if he flip flopped on Ukraine again because he's done it so many times. It, It just it was a very poor showing on DeSantis's part, and he did nothing to uh, instill confidence in the donors that he has left or in his supporters that he has what it takes to take on Joe Biden, much less Donald Trump, much less anybody else on that stage. Uh, Number two, Vivek Ramaswamy, Uh, you know, he came into that debate hot. Um, You know, on a little bit of a bump there, uh, obviously he's been stumbling the last few days on his foreign policy, and I think Nikki Haley had the best line of the night. She said he knows absolutely nothing about foreign policy, and it shows. Uh, You know, Frank Pence made several comments about his age and the fact that he has no real uh resume. I mean, he just kind of walked into this debate as a, a hotshot frankly uh with a little bit too much of an ego for the limited resume that he has and it, it kind of rubbed everyone the wrong way and they attacked him for it and rightfully so. And I think he just showed that he was not qualified uh to be in that top seat. He probably needed to run for local office first before deciding that he was qualified to be president of the United States, but that's a whole different conversation. Uh, you know, and finally I have to say, uh, Chris Christie was the one that I was also really disappointed in. He was directly asked about the Trump indictments and Trump not being on that stage tonight. And this was an opportunity for him to go all in on something that he has said, is his sole mission as a presidential candidate to take on Donald Trump and to knock him out of the polls. And he completely whiffed on that. He wasn't as strong as he usually is on that question. Um, it was kind of unforgettable and it was really disappointing uh, considering that is kind of the whole mission of his his, pres- his presidential campaign is to take down Donald Trump and he did not do it when given the prime opportunity. It was a softball and he missed.
0: All right. Now I'm uh, going to throw it over to Representative Hudson and I, I want you to also um, give us your, your bottom three here, but also if you want to have any responses, I know that two of Priya's bottom three, we're in your top three. So let's let's hear from you on that as well.
2: Well, I appreciate that latitude. I was gonna let that pass, but since you've uh, opened up the path for me to to respond, I'll I'll try to thread that in there. First of all, I'll just say that um, at the risk of sounding like I'm kissing up to our hosts, uh, Broadcorp and Becky, you guys put together a good panel tonight. Um, if for no other reason, then you're gonna get a, a diversity of response, a spectrum um, of opinion here. Uh, because my bottom three are very different. Um, and in the order from the third worst to the, to the absolute worst, I would say Mike Pence was third from the bottom, um, which is about where I would have expected him to end up. Uh, I didn't think that he did a terrible job tonight. In fact, I really respect, um, his commitment to his positions, even as I disagree with them. I mean, the guy's consistent in terms of, um, what he says he believes and his willingness to say it to an audience of people that he knows is going to boo him for it. Uh, that, that speaks to character, but I don't think he did himself any favors tonight by doing that. I I don't know who he, his audience is or what he thinks his path is to the republican nomination for president or what he's even doing in this race um from there it it gets even worse you know asa hutchinson um it's hard to understand how he is i mean you got to give him credit he is an elected governor of a state in the union so he must have some political acumen uh but i don't understand how a guy like that gets nominated, endorsed, put forward as a Republican candidate for anything. Um, He sounds very weak on all the issues that are of utmost importance to those in the grassroots. And I think even folks who are kind of apolitical and concerned about um, workaday issues. And last would be Doug Burgum. Doug Burgum was my Chris Christie in terms of you know, Praya said she didn't even really notice he was there. Um, that's kind of how I felt about Doug Burgum. I, I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know why he's doing this, other than maybe to just elevate his name ID um, for some potential future prospects. But I, I can't, I can't recall a single thing that he said tonight. It was, it was just that unremarkable. Um, as far as Vivek, listen, I, I don't think that. I think the criticisms that Prayer. Raises regarding Vivek Ramaswamy, um, there's some legitimacy f- for sure in his his kind of unearned swagger. I think he does conduct himself with a fair amount of unearned swagger, um, and that certainly th- there's there's a there's a market for that, right? There's an audience for that, which I think explains how he, he's been described as having this meteoric rise uh, in the polls, and I think that does play into it. Um, but there's only only Donald Trump can do Donald Trump. And Vivek is kind of coming across as like the poor man's Donald Trump, um, which if that's what you want, you're just going to vote for Donald Trump, right? Like, I don't, I don't understand what the, the market is there again, kind of similar to, to the other candidates of what is it that who's the imaginary Republican voter who you think, um, is going to take you over this guy who you're trying to emulate, um, but like I say, the reason why he's in my top three, and indeed number two, is because I think overall his performance tonight resulted in the the greatest elevation of his candidacy. So if if nothing else, if not in the polls, we'll see. Um, certainly in the minds of those Republican primary voters who were tuning in.
0: Fantastic. And John, over to you. Yeah. Uh so yeah, you know, presidential
3: races more than any other race, uh, I think, really come down to what I'll call vibes. Right? It's the the general vibe of the candidate who is out there, and uh, it's about hanging around long enough to see if you know, what you're saying starts to resonate a little bit, and try and grab onto that moment and get it to happen at the right time. Uh, and you know, when we look at debates, Roger Ailes had the orchestra pit theory. Uh, James Carville uh, described it and said that the press likes to talk about scandals, gaffes, polls, and attacks. Uh, and, you know, I think coming out of tonight, uh, somebody who had some gas, uh and is in my bottom three uh, is Vivek. Uh, I think that he came in on a heater. He was rising. Uh, interestingly, he's rising a lot more online. Uh, I think some of that can obviously be attributed to his age, to his uh, supporters. Uh, but he does significantly better in surveys that are conducted online. Uh, and I think he's running a very online campaign, uh, if I could kind of put it that way. Uh, but what struck me is that, you know, it was a lot of sound bites, it was a lot of chasing uh, that one moment, uh, but there's not a whole lot under the surface. And I think some of that comes from the inexperience, some of that comes uh, from maybe being a little bit overconfident. Uh, but you know, it really struck me that you know, Democratic populism and Republican populism sound a lot alike. Uh, and you could see that when he stole President Obama's debate line when he uh, gave the intro- introduction and talked about the skinny kid standing in the middle uh, with a weird-sounding last name or a funny-sounding last name. Uh, you could see it when he stole Sarah Palin's Drill Baby Drill. Uh, and I think when the voters continue to look at it, they're going to see it when they find out that he stole Bernie Sanders' death tax plan uh, and wants a death tax at 60%. Uh, so I think that there's uh, a lot there where people start to scratch that surface. I think Nikki Haley scratched the surface on him, that Mike Pence scratched the surface on him. Uh, and I think that tonight he kind of exposed himself that uh, when those punches start to fly, I don't think that there's going to be much there to back them up. Uh, you know, So I think I have him in my kind of loser's Uh, bucket because of that just because he showed that there's a soft opening underneath that armor Uh, I've got uh, Ron DeSantis uh, in my losers bucket and honestly for very similar reasons that uh, representative Hudson had him in uh, his winner's bucket and I think that it was kind of a game same uh, game -er, samer moment for him he did no harm but he didn't do any good either uh, and I think heading into tonight the expectations were so high on a reset for Governor DeSantis that he needed to not do no harm tonight. He needed to have a moment he needed to have a good night. Uh, I was actually texting with a, a donor friend of mine from New York City. Uh, I was very plugged in with uh, the major donor community, the folks who uh, you know initially were talking about writing those seven figure checks to his super PAC uh, and folks are, Looking to see, they're waiting to see some sort of a moment. Uh, And I think, you know, his super PAC uh, aired in when they put out uh, the debate prep materials on their website. uh, And they really painted Governor DeSantis into a really, really tough spot. Uh, You know, they said that he needed to attack Vivek, they said that he needed to stand up to Chris Christie, that he needed to defend Donald Trump. Uh, And they said that he needed to have a, you know, humanizing moment where he could show that he's likable, that he's not robotic. Uh, And frankly, if he had told a great story tonight, right. Something about his kids or his wife or something where he gets humanized. All of a sudden the question is, did you do that because your super PAC told you that you needed to be a human? Um, And it was really a no win situation for him. Um, But I think, uh, you know, Kind of not hitting it out of the park uh, translates to a loss. It reminds me a lot of Governor Walker, who's somebody who I liked. I supported Governor Walker when he ran in 2016 initially. Uh, I think he dropped out, you know, what was it, uh, shortly after that second debate there. Uh, but a guy who was well funded, had a massive campaign footprint, was very built up around the grassroots, wanted to go door to door, and just dropped a ton of money and got too big too quick uh, and kind of. Yeah, the, the whole plan wasn't necessarily scalable. Uh, and I see shades of that with Governor DeSantis. Uh, and my third loser, uh, I will say, unfortunately for me, uh, I'm going to put Tim Scott in that bucket. Um, I really like uh, Senator Scott. I think that you know, he represents uh, kind of the Republican Party that I remember when I was starting to get involved. Uh, very much kind of a traditional Republican, a conservative uh, he's got the voting record to match it he you know ideologically I think is kind of where uh the home of the party was from you know 2004 to 2015 or so um and I think you know he was one of those guys who I forgot was on stage um I thought that you know he had a couple of uh chances where he you know made good points where people were probably nodding along with him uh, but his presence was just you know I think that when we yeah, I haven't gone through and tallied up how much time uh, he had to speak, but I, I've got to imagine that he was in the bottom half of that bucket. Um, and I just don't think he took advantage, but uh, whether or not that hurts him long-term remains to be seen. We've got a friend who likes to say survive in advance. Um, and I think that, you know, he may have survived. Uh, and I think he's somebody whose message could really resonate well in Iowa.
0: Um, before we get to you, Michael, I, I do have it up of who spoke the most and I'll, I'll run through that real quick. Um, starting from the top, Pence got two and a half minutes, Ramaswamy got 1147, Christy 1122, DeSantis 1022, Haley 841, which is surprising bottom half, all of our top, um, threes. Scott got 815, Bergum eight minutes and Hutchinson 733, which is just under half of what Mike Pence did. Uh, Michael, over to you.
1: Uh, first of all, uh, let me say I think there were um, there were too many candidates on stage, and that was frustrating to me. I think it would be good going forward if there was. I think it would be good for the RNC to have a higher threshold for candidates because, and because I think there were just some distractions tonight. Um, in until John brought up Tim Scott, I and I watched the whole debate. I forgot he was on stage, um, and so I would kind of have two groups of people that I don't think. So- it. I think Tim Scott, Hutchinson, and Bergham, uh just did not do anything to advance their cause tonight. Um, but of the main contenders that I think, I'm going to go with this, number one, DeSantis. I think that he had a real missed opportunity tonight. And I think he's in a tough spot. He's, he's, he's been the main opponent uh, of the former president. Um, he's really in a tough spot. I just don't think tonight's format, with the number of candidates there, and the expectations on him, I think he exceeded expectations as to how poor he could do, and so I, I just don't think he he did enough to advance the ball. Uh, Pence, I just think there's not a place for his candidacy. Uh, I, I just don't think there's a place for his candidacy. I think he, based on his performance tonight, I think he's going to try to appeal to evangelicals um, in this race. Um, there's just not enough excitement. I think. And based on how Trump has kind of, I think, amped up the party, uh, I just don't think there's any platform or any ticket long term for Pence to stay in this race. Vivek um, came across, and, and and I don't know in what order these are. If this is if he's the the bottom of the three or the top of the three, depending how you look at the list, I think he came across very unlikable. And I know this isn't a popularity contest, and politics isn't a popularity contest, but in terms of the candidates that I kind of just had just kind of a bad reaction to I I agree with Representative Hudson I think he is he is trying to do Trump um, and there's only one candidate in this race that can do Trump and that's Trump I think that Vivek is very quickly becoming the least popular candidate on stage and that might be his chick and that might be what he wants to do but I just don't think long term there's much depth there Um, and so those are the three that I have but again from a process standpoint I sure would like to see the RNC have a higher standard going forward so we can wean out some of these candidates. I mean, no disrespect to some of the other minor candidates that are on the race, but let's just be candid amongst the five of us that there we, we should just maybe have a debate where we, we got some real people that are in the race. And I think any time that was spent on this race, no disrespect to Tim Scott or Hutchinson or Burgum, that's just a, a waste in the process. And I think the RNC should look at a smaller debate going forward with higher standards uh, to get in, and then we can have a more thoughtful conversation and provide some real contrast with some of the other candidates.
0: All right. Kind of following suit. I have some some repeat offenders here in my bottom three. I'll rattle them off relatively quickly. I don't have a ton new to add. Um, starting with Hutchinson. Didn't get enough time, was too quiet. I will say when he did speak, he did sound genuine and authentic. I do believe that he really truly cares and wants to do better for the party in the country. I just don't see the fight in him. Tim Scott, I I was really. Um, I had high hopes. I, I think that he's a great voice for the Republican Party. I think I don't know if he was trying to overcompensate and, and run for this to the right. But I felt there were times where he was trying to outflank the rest on on this stage and really be that furthest right um, uh, candidate up there. I did enjoy his closing. Um, good. Good. Say, you know, if you're in Iowa, vote for me. Go to my website. Donate love a good plug good com staffer dream there um, and DeSantis I think it was his to lose and I think he lost it I think that um I, I'm always I'm not really a fan except for an open and bot, uh, closing of of doing the straight to camera and not looking at you know the moderators or folks in the room he did that kind of came all across little crazy eyes um, and I am all about a pivot and I'll come back to that later because I think there were some really great pivots I actually tweeted about one of Christie's I um, but I don't think he answered half the questions that he was asked. And, and I thought that that was really frustrating. So um those are my bottom threes uh, real quick before we move on. Any, any comments that uh, anybody wants to throw out uh, uh, against anybody else's or general, general re rebuttals.
1: Well, I have one question and, and I'd be curious what the panel thinks. We talk a lot about tickets getting punched to the, it got the momentum. I wonder who, Who potentially after this debate, are we at a point in this race where all of the candidates that are on stage, does anyone get out? Uh, Did any candidacies end tonight? Because, I mean, I think, I don't think anyone's candidacies ended tonight. I do think some should, but I don't know if anyone is, I don't know if there were any critical mistakes that were made that's going to end someone. I, I do think some should end but I don't know. I think all of them stand, but I'm curious if anyone else had a perspective of someone's performance was so bad tonight. They just, they need to get out. Uh, I generally agree with your analysis. I mean,
2: um, I'm, I'm going to hold back a little bit for, for our next question in terms of um, the details, but suffice it to say for now. um, Yeah. Those are two different questions who should get out versus who will get out. I don't think anybody who should get out was, provided the motivation tonight to actually execute and pull the trigger and get out of the race
3: yeah i don't think we saw anything that it's an immediate uh you know campaign ender uh but i do think that we started to see some things that uh, will likely trickle down and you know presidential campaigns don't end because you're done running they end because you run out of money uh they end because you've fallen so far in the poll Uh, And I think it's a slower burn, but I think we saw the start of that with some some campaigns tonight uh, that I think, you know, we'll start to see that uh, they need to tighten up the belt and figure out uh, if they can uh, reset and get back into this thing.
4: Well, I know he wasn't on the debate stage tonight, but I know a lot of folks are waiting to see whether Suarez keeps to his word and actually drops out now that he didn't make the debate stage. So uh, clock's ticking on that one.
3: You know, his uh, his announcement that he didn't make the stage looked a lot like a uh, concession to me uh, where he closed it out with I intend to help whoever the Republicans pick uh, beat Joe Biden. So uh, he's got to make it
4: a little bit more clear to the press.
3: (laughs) I think we can see that one uh, probably coming pretty soon.
0: All right. Well, this kind of goes along with our, our next one. We're going to talk about, in general, state of the race. I I, I am going to um, make a plug. We're going to talk specifically about, about Trump here after this question. But um, we'll want to hit on, like I said, overall state of the race um, as it stands today, post-debate now. Will we see changes in the polls and which way? Who, if anybody, um, well, we just answered that one. Nobody's going to drop out that we know of right now. And um, how does Trump react and retaliate? Who is he going to take swings at? Um, This one, Representative Hudson, I'm going to throw it to you.
2: My one word reaction to tonight is nothing burger. Um, This, it, it will be as if tonight did not happen. Because nothing meaningful or impactful or lasting occurred tonight. Uh, for a variety of reasons, the various performances, the, the lack of Donald Trump present on the stage. Um, but, you know, most curiously of all, as we've already discussed uh, at length, the fact that so few candidates took the opportunity to make the case why the guy who's far and away in the lead shouldn't ultimately be the nominee on the Republican side for president of the United States. If you're not going to do that, then what's the point? Um, I, and I feel, you know, going back to the points that were made earlier regarding the, just the number of people on stage and having a higher standard and a a bigger threshold for getting on stage in the first place. I think that kind of raises the question of, from the RNC's perspective, um, and there's a broader ecosphere than just the RNC that determines these things. But, you know, what is it that the, that the various interests are trying to achieve? Um, and the answer to that doesn't seem to be producing a nominee that will defeat Joe Biden. At this stage, the goal seems to be a lot of other stuff, a lot of like business stuff of let's let's have um a let's let's have more people on the stage because it's more dynamic. and we can potentially have more interesting clips um, that we can. Uh, farm out and kind of gin gin up interest in the primary as a product. And this primary isn't a product. This primary is a function by which we're going to determine um, who we're putting forward to meet a moment that needs to be met. I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of time today and folks listening up to this point might, uh, could be forgiven for assuming that I'm um, rehashing my 2016 stance uh, against the presidential candidacy of Donald Trump. That's not what's happening at all. I'm merely stating the observation that the only point of having this process with the polls being what they are is to demonstrate that he shouldn't be the nominee. If you're not going to do that, then there's no point in having this process and it's all a giant distraction and all of the money that's being spent on it would be better spent developing a a campaign and electoral ballot uh, gathering operation that's actually going to lead to victory in 2024. Um and so, you know, I think the overall result of this is that nothing really has changed. Trump is still going to be in the lead. If 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 I was advising Trump, I Tell him to do exactly what he did tonight, pretend it didn't even happen. There's no there's no point in responding to anything. There's no point in retaliating against anyone. To to give anybody um oxygen by addressing them directly, and I would include DeSantis in this at this point, uh, is only benefiting the person that you're attacking and doing nothing for your candidacy whatsoever. He can actually, unlike Vivek, he has earned swagger. He can actually conduct himself moving forward with swagger because with this being the trajectory, he is going to be the nominee. And by the way, the rest of us need to figure out how to deal with that. Like, if if there is one, I'll, I'll edit my initial kind of headline just this much. What, sh- what should change tonight is not what any of the campaigns necessarily are doing other than the ones that should be getting out, but it's what the rest of us should be doing. A lot of us were looking at tonight for an indication that the poll positions were going to change, that there was gonna be somebody who could potentially give Trump a run for his money and potentially be the next Republican nominee for president. It seems very clear to me at this point that absent some titanic unforeseen shift between now and um, once we get into the caucus and primary, actual votes being cast next year, Trump's gonna be the nominee. And so that reality, is something that the rest of the conservative Republican ecosphere um, needs to become, if not comfortable with, certainly develop their strategies around and learn how to accept and work with.
0: All right, Mr. Rouleau.
2: Yeah, I think, you have pretty much an agreement
3: that the state of the race is relatively unchanged. Uh, Here, I think, this far out, though, it is important to remember that we don't have a national primary, right? Just like we don't have a national presidential election, uh, we have 50 states that are going to host a uh, combination of primaries and caucuses. Uh, the results of those, you know, the RNC rule changes, we have a lot of binding of delegates and binding of delegates in unique ways. Uh, you know, I think that we're too far out to really know. Uh, what that's going to shake out and look like. Uh, I think that I I still think that I could see someone like Tim Scott uh, doing really well in Iowa. That's a state that kind of has bucked uh, conventional wisdom. They tend to uh, really like uh, kind of a more traditional conservative. Uh, right now, Governor DeSantis has a absolute ton of the uh, support from electeds and from county chairmen and things of that sort in Iowa. Uh, I'll be curious if that holds Uh, but Tim Scott is absolutely in the mold of what Iowa likes uh, kind of in the lines of uh, Mike Huckabee and the lines of Rick Santorum uh, people who have done very well in Iowa Uh, and that's really going to be the first test right followed by uh, North Carolina or uh, New Hampshire and then Nevada and then we move into Super Tuesday so uh, we've got a while before February gets or before January gets here for Iowa and February and March get here for everybody else. Uh, we've got at least another debate in the next month. Uh, but I think for tonight, uh, very, very little changes except for, you know, hopefully some strategy on these campaigns. Uh, I don't know that anybody really should be looking in the mirror. Uh, outside of maybe a very uh, limited number of the candidates and nodding and saying what we did worked, let's keep doing it. Uh, I'll be very curious if uh, if Governor Haley is able to get a boost based on tonight. Uh, you know, I think that it was most likely a tactical decision that everybody was ganging up on Vivek. Uh, you know, I know that I saw people saying that you know maybe people don't like him, maybe he seems cocky, maybe he seems smarmy. Uh, you know, he's the guy who was on the rise and I think was pulling, uh, voters likely from DeSantis. Uh, and those voters who had moved from DeSantis to Vivek, uh, I think that, you know, those are the free agents. Uh, so people were, I think, saw a target that was, uh, you know, ripe for the picking. And I'll be very curious if governor Haley is able to capture any of those voters, uh, and if anything reshuffles a little bit. Uh, but I think looking at the polls is, you know. Uh, I don't want to confuse the interesting with the important, right? The polls are interesting to watch, but I don't think that they're that important at this stage. Uh, And I think folks need to spend their time, continue to spend their time uh, on the ground, having those grassroots conversations, going door to door, uh, but also raising their money. Because, uh, as I mentioned before, presidential campaigns end because you run out of money. Uh, And I think that they need to make sure that they've got gas in the tank to uh, make it to Iowa.
0: Priya, you're up.
4: I think I kind of agree with everyone in the sense that, you know, Donald Trump is not going to suddenly drop from the sky and be second, third place. But I also think you're going to see a reshuffling of these other candidates who are running to be that answer to if not Trump, then who? And I think Nikki Haley definitely made that case tonight that she is that candidate to take on Donald Trump. Uh, I think it was really telling right before the debates. uh, Politico did a story um, in playbook. They reached out to Biden's brain trust, as they call him. And I think that's funny to begin with, that he has a brain trust. But that's a different conversation for another day. Uh, They reached out to the brain trust and asked who they were most afraid of. And it was Nikki Haley. That is who they're most afraid of. And I think tonight she demonstrated exactly why they're terrified of her. I think when we look to Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, I've talked with a lot of reporters, okay? And it's very easy to tell who's spent time in Iowa, New Hampshire, and those who have not I've spent two years in Iowa, and I got to know folks really well, and I got to know the process really well, and I got to understand that they, whether you agree with it or not, they take their position as first in the nation very seriously, this is something they, they feel a weight on their shoulders that they are responsible for kicking off a presidential race and they are responsible for potentially choosing the next president of the United States. These are folks who have a, a very unique level of access that no other state will ever have. And they take that very seriously. And so I think anybody uh, who talks about, the, looks at the polling, who looks at uh, Iowa and says, oh, well, you know, DeSantis is up X number of points, or he's got 10,000 folks who are committed, uh, signed caucus cards, and they're going to caucus for him in January. I'm laughing at them on the inside, because Iowans will not choose their candidate until like two weeks out. Or even the day of, they will not make a decision because they view their role and their position as first in the nation that seriously. I think that Iowa is constantly a moving and shifting state. Same with New Hampshire. Very different electorate. But they on this, they agree very much on that weight and that responsibility they uh, carry. Whether you agree with it or not, that is something that they very deeply hold. And so I think that that is an electorate that is going to constantly shift and shape and form even into December and as we get into January. So uh, I think if as folks kind of look at Iowa, I always say, remember and look at the last three presidential elections, the folks who were told that they had no shot in hell of winning the Iowa caucuses or even being in the top three, those were the folks that came out on top. So I'm not saying that Donald Trump doesn't win the Iowa caucuses. I'm not going to say that. He's currently the front runner, and we all have to accept that. But I'm saying look at the results historically. That tells me something that this race isn't set in stone, despite what anyone wants to say. Iowans are very fickle. And if Donald Trump continues to not campaign the way that he has it, if he continues to not show up, Iowans take that very seriously, granite staters take that very seriously, and they'll be paying attention. And then to John's point, I know you love Tim Scott, and I know that you're, you kind of pointed to some of these folks who kind of have this Tim Scott embodiment of uh, you know, Mike Huckabees of the world, stuff like that. I will say the new Iowa is very different and they let themselves a strong woman. And Joni Ernst and Kim Reynolds are a great example of that. And the fact that we have Marionette Miller-Meeks and Ashley Hinson, I mean, that is a state that loves themselves a strong conservative woman. So uh, if anyone has a good shot of uh, taking Iowa home, I'm putting my money on Nikki Haley.
3: Well, and Iowa is such an interesting state, right? Because it's so relational. Yeah. The year that uh, Santorum won Iowa was 2012. I was down there uh, in fall of 2011, spring of 2012, leading up to that. And that guy was everywhere, right? Like if he had frequent flyer miles for pizza ranch, Rick Santorum would have gotten his name on the side of a restaurant type thing. Um, But it's such an interesting relational state where You you can kind of start to take a look and see who's spending time there, who's working their way around the counties, who's talking. And I was at an event, I think it might have been Lincoln Reagan, and Rick Santorum stood in that auditorium like two and a half hours before the event started and had a conversation with every single person who walked up to him. Uh, And it is retail politics at its best. Uh, And I think, you know, it'll be really interesting to see who thrives in that environment. Uh, From what I've seen, it is not Ron DeSantis. Uh, But yeah, I could see absolutely, uh, you know, my dark horse who could do well in a state like that is Doug Burgum. Uh, He's a guy who could have a lot of those conversations and who could go spend a lot of time and who comes off as extremely authentic, whether you like what he has to say or not. Um, he knows a lot of folks just like that. Uh, but I could see Nikki Haley doing well there. I can see Tim Scott doing well there. Uh, I think Iowa is and you know, should remain wide open. Um, but yeah, it's uh it's an interesting state. And yes, I agree that they have a lot of very strong, uh successful conservative women coming out of Iowa and uh Minnesota could learn a thing or two.
4: Amen. I, I will say that uh Your point about the retail politics, it's so important in a state like Iowa and New Hampshire. I remember when I first moved down there, I was told a story about Hillary Clinton going to this small town in Iowa. I think it was like eastern, southeast Iowa. um, And Donald Trump hadn't gone. But folks in that county remembered. And I think she fled that county either in the caucus process or in the general election. And it was literally because she went and shook hands and did the speech and did her thing. One time and Donald Trump did not. And that is literally the difference maker. Do you show up or do you not? Iowans take the full Grassley very seriously. It's, you know, Grassley started doing the 99 county tour. Every single fallen, followed up on that since. And they take it very seriously. Now it works for some and it works for, it doesn't work for others. John Delaney is a great example of that. In 2020, he did the full grass lease twice and only got 5% of the vote. So you got to do it well, but if you do it right, you you have a really good opportunity to to make some difference in a state like Iowa.
0: Michael, what are um, your thoughts?
1: I think the state of the race is, is, and I'll pivot to Iowa in a second. I think the state of the race is, is Donald Trump is still in the lead. I still I still think he's the presumptive the presumptive nominee. And he's still um, I think he has the ability right now to run a full national campaign. I think there's candidates right now that are have regional uh, opportunities. I mean, and I was, you know, significant, but also there's a history inside, particularly inside the Republican Party of not winning Iowa or winning Iowa and not becoming the nominee. Uh, I mean, Ted Cruz won it in 2016. Mike Huckabee wanted in 2008. Um, Bob Dole, I think, wanted in '88, and so these are all candidates who later who won Iowa, but then later did did not become the nominee. Um, And so I think there is a, a path there. I, I think at some point on the Republican side, there needs to be a clear organizational number two to Donald Trump, and that needs to develop. My hope is that that develops soon. My hope is that a Nikki Haley. Or some other candidate, uh, you know, others that have mentioned here, become a strong alternative. Where I, that's where I think this race needs to shape up. Um, I still think right now it's Donald Trump's race to lose. My hope is that over the next co- coming weeks and months, organizationally, someone starts to develop a real one-on-one-on-one dynamic, a one-on-two dynamic with Donald Trump. I think starting off. I think a lot of people thought it was going to be Desantis, but I just don't think he's up to the task. I don't think his campaign is up to the task. As someone pointed out, it may have been prior. Uh, this is we're on multiple reboots here, um, and it's just I don't think it's it's working. I don't think the reboots are working, and we all can probably cite examples of campaigns uh, that went through reboots that were that were successful when they did reboots. And there's just something with Desantis's operation that I don't think has taken off yet, and I don't think it's going to. So I think there's a path for a number two, um, and I think DeSantis is getting lapped very quickly. But the state of the race today, I still think it's Trump's to win. I still think he, he's the front runner. but I think there's an opportunity. But someone's got to get some momentum and start going here quickly, or this thing's going to be lost before before we get too much farther down the road.
0: Um, my quick comments on this are starting with a question. Walter, Representative Hudson, you started out by saying, um, you, you don't think or or hope that Donald Trump does not respond, you know, to any of these attacks that came out on the stage. Um, I, I, I think, you know, me personally, if I was working on his campaign, I would also say, you know, don't mention them. Don't bring attention to them. Do you think he has it within him to not, or do you think? The Donald Trump that we know and love is going to make sure that he question. comments back to everyone that mentioned him.
2: I mean, I could pull up truth social on another tab right now, <laughs> and I guarantee you he's he's probably done something right. Um, no, it's, it's very much in his nature to clap back um, at people when they clap at him, especially publicly. Uh, I think he would be well advised. And just to clarify, like my hopes, my desires, I could care less what he does in response. Right, right, I know. (laughs) But but if I'm advising him, I would most definitely say, pretend these people don't exist. Because for all functional purposes, they don't. Like, this is not an impact. There is no center of gravity in the candidate field that was on that stage tonight that presents any threat to Trump's orbit. So- why even talk about them? You know who you talk about. You talk about the people who are who are attacking you. You talk about the indictments. You talk about Biden. You talk about um, you know the Democrats, and they're taking the country in the wrong direction. You you go str- you keep campaigning as if you're the guy, and you're going after um, that that brass ring in the general election. There's no reason to talk about the Republican primary because at the current moment, it only exists as a wonky phenomenon for folks like us to talk about on our podcasts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, my my second comment is is more just in general is um, we, you know, on the podcast have very often talked about how, you know, Trump's got this locked up. He's the candidate. You know, it's just kind of the situation. I did get a Facebook message from a Minnesota activist who is, you know, BPOU leader, um, has been very active on campaigns who said, we need to work on how we're messaging because, if we keep continuing down that messaging path, folks are going to say, why do I show up then? Why do I show up and vote in the presidential primary? Why do I show up at the caucuses? Which now, you know, polls are polls are obviously very extreme. It's not like he's just leading by one, two, five points here, right? We're up by 30-some. But I do think there is something to that that, you know – on our side is if, if we're going to have any hope is we need to make sure that the folks that do show up, that we do need to come out and vote in these primaries, do believe that there might be some tiny sliver of hope that one of these other candidates can get through. And what I'm hopeful from tonight is that, you know, we've seen... I've seen some really good donors, business leaders, um, you know, established, which is such a dirty word these days, but, you know, good, solid Republican leaders from from decades past and years past um, come out in support of some of these, the Chris Christie's, the Nikki Haley's um, and, and, and the like. And I think that I'm looking forward to seeing some of those names that maybe come out a little bit more vocally behind some of these candidates who performed well tonight and deserve to have a little bit of a boost both financially and by some some named people who are able to throw a little bit more weight um by coming out endorsing hosting fundraisers and the sort. So um I think that we will see some people get off the bench. I think there are some people that were maybe waiting in the wings and and hopefully come out. So I think that will be interesting to see how um how that plays so before we move in fully lean into trump world any other comments on general state of the race
3: does anyone have a dark horse that they're waiting to see if they get in or do we think that it's too late uh is there anything to duncan waiting to see how november goes and thinking about jumping in uh, and sucking up some oxygen if nobody's been able to surge by then
0: that is a great question. I don't I don't have any on, on the top of mind. Yunkin, um, I guess, would be the one. I think he's, I don't know that I think he's doing a good thing of what he's doing. And I, you know, get another term or two before he does that.
1: I I, mean, I think that they're, Representative Hudson, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to say,
2: from the perspective of um, somebody who has run for office and holds an office, if if I try to put myself in the head... Of a potential person considering getting into this race past this point. The questions that I would be asking myself are things like, you know, what do I hope to accomplish? And and what is my path to to victory in the nomination? And I, I think that there is a candidate who is currently representing each of the potential paths and vectors of attack that one could conceivably take against Donald Trump and none of them have met with success so uh, if you're yunkin or someone like that i just don't know what do you think what are you thinking or or plotting or imagining is going to be different about you other than your face and your name that's going to translate to bring something to this race that isn't already currently represented by the field as it exists
4: i also think if he waits until november it's it's really late. He's going to have to work very quickly to not only get the donor money in, but he's also going to have to make sure that he's on the ballot in time and he's going to have to campaign like crazy during the holidays when folks definitely don't want to be paying attention to pol- politics. They're going to have to be paying it. They're going to have to be full speed ahead 24-7 trying to, uh, you know, make sure that they're hitting all the targets that they need to be doing hitting all of these states doing the retail politics to make sure that they don't embarrass themselves because if they if he does get in post November it's going to look really dumb on his part if he doesn't get more than 3 to 5% in the caucus or the primary and then it becomes a question of well like where does he go from here because he's had his one shot like does he have some kind of, is there some kind of downside effect that hits him after the fact? And that's going to be, you know, part of that conversation as well.
3: Because he's term limited, right? He's, he's done being governor. Uh, So he, this is kind of the last hurrah. Um, If not this, then what? Uh, But yeah, it's a theory that had been thrown out to me, uh, you know, not too long ago of the, you know if DeSantis can't seem to unify people, if Tim Scott can't seem to unify, if nobody is you know finding a way to get the uh, kind of open to somebody who's not Trump, uh, factions of the party to coalesce around a candidacy, does somebody make you know sort of a Hail Mary play uh, and say, we gotta try something. Uh, and frankly, by that point, the race, could be thinning out a little bit hopefully we're starting to see some of uh some of those numbers kind of starting to boost up some people who are hovering down at you know zero or one or a half percent deciding that okay maybe a, this uh race isn't for me maybe we'll see perry johnson and uh suarez mm-hmm. drop out uh, instead of threatening to sue the rnc but um you know it'll be interesting to see but Uh, that's kind of the only you know only thing that's been thrown out to me that i wonder does that change anything or is that just kind of are people trying to whip cast uh somebody who's not trump into existence uh out of sheer desperation at this point
2: I, i would just tack on that i think that um youngkin entering the race challenging desantis for number two would be very similar to the position that vivek currently has of trying to be a a mini trump or um a, a different version of trump because the case for youngkin as i see it um is he's a he's a governor who won in a blue state um and has actually executed on policies that are important to conservatives in that previously blue state that's a great argument that's a great narrative But DeSantis has that beat like DeSantis is just won Florida by 20 points. You know, a a state that we can all remember um, was the state to watch on presidential election nights because as Florida goes, so will likely go the race. Um, It was very much a swing state. Now it's definitively red. DeSantis played a huge role in that. And he's been executing on policy left and right, and not just any policy, but the policies that are of greatest import to the grassroots, or at least that we say are of the greatest import to us. And so if there was a path to defeat Trump in this primary contest, based upon the merits of governing, DeSantis wouldn't be as far behind Trump as he currently is. And so Youngkin coming in uh, with, with not as great of a resume um, to put forward in that same type of, uh, contest, I don't think would have a whole lot of potential. Do you have concerns about a red state governor who's passing some
3: of the, you know, most typical red state kind of, you know, grassroots agendas, selling those to blue states, purple states, trying to get across the finish line and get to 270. Yeah. As he's, as he's doing that, right. We're talking about how it's a, you know, it was a swing state. It is now a red state. You know, I don't think that anybody's under any illusions that Ohio and Florida still are swing states, right? Now we've got to think about places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Georgia, Arizona, uh, to a lesser extent, Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, you know, Colorado is not a swing state anymore. That is a blue state. Uh, so as we try and export yeah, is there something to be said for a governor who's won in a blue state like a Chris Christie or a Glenn Youngkin, uh, or somebody who's, you know, had the opportunity to uh, campaign beyond those borders, or uh, or are we going to face challenges, uh, especially in such a polarized environment, right, where we've got uh, things that are uh, here uh, that we're seeing.
2: Yeah, so I would say – I mean just – you don't have to look any further than the borders of our own state. Um, the Republican presidential candidate who's had the greatest success, if you want to characterize it as success, within the state of Minnesota in recent years has been Donald Trump, um, who is about as red meat red as you could possibly get. Um, he underperformed I don't- Romney though, right? He
3: got a lower percentage than Mitt Romney, right? It's just that Hillary Clinton underperformed every
2: Democrat who's run – yeah, that's a fair point. That's absolutely a fair point. And, and I don't have the ability on the fly here to to control um, for that difference and, and determine um, you know w- what was better or worse. But what I will say is that Donald Trump was able to demonstrate, and yeah, Hillary's a terrible candidate, and that's probably a big part of the reason why Trump won in 2016 and did not prevail ultimately in 2020. Um, but be that as it may, I don't think there's any denying that he reshaped, and maybe he personally didn't reshape it, but there, there was a reshaping on the verge of happening that his candidacy catalyzed um, in terms of what the political playing field looks like and what the coalitions of the parties look like. Um, I think you coupled that, and this is kind of previewing, telescoping, when we get into kind of our final analysis here. And so I'll I'll just kind of summarize here and expound later. But I think when you couple that reshaping of the political landscape with taking into consideration the new electoral reality in terms of how elections work and the fact that it's much less about messaging and a candidate's presentation and what a mailer looks like in somebody's mailbox and much more about the physical operation of getting ballots in boxes i think that that physical on the ground operation of collecting ballots getting them turned in going back and collecting more um that that is going to be the determining factor far more than who the candidate ultimately is
4: hey uh, and i'll say this too if i can figure out how my mute button works i will say that desantis isn't your typical red state governor either I think that he and a a lot of other folks like to say that he turned Florida red and that's not necessarily true Florida had been trending red a lot longer before a lot longer before DeSantis got onto the scene but also like the Democrats abandoning uh Cuban like immigrants who live in miami day County. Uh, force a socialist agenda is what really helped flip a lot of what we're seeing now happening in Florida. When you look at Ron DeSantis, he is a a candidate who has it very comfortably in Florida. He has a super majority uh, in the Florida legislature, and they will do whatever he asks them to, no questions asked. So he is able to pass a very red meat agenda. And then you and so there's not a lot that he has to do in in terms of a push and pull with folks. And so when you have to take that strategy and nationalize it, at a time where Republicans have a four-seat majority in the House, we do not have the Senate, and Joe Biden is president of the United States, that becomes a lot more difficult to manage. And for Ron DeSantis, he's going to have to work harder than ever before. And what we've seen so far is not necessarily that folks aren't necessarily uh, not liking Ron DeSantis's policies. It's just that when they meet him, they realize they don't like him.
0: Wow. Finishing strong there. Um, Michael, I think you had something uh, before. I, I'm super, this is like just making me my heart smile with this good conversation. But Michael, I think you had a comment before we moved on to the Trump.
1: I'll be very brief. We don't have an Eisenhower. So, there's the, I think the race is set. I think we can, I think everyone here has said everything much more eloquently than I could. Um, I think the race is set. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that.
0: All right. Well, we're, you know, nearing our hour and a half mark here close to midnight. Want to be mindful of, you know, maybe if anybody wants to get some sleep before work tomorrow. So, Let's close out here uh, with a question about Donald Trump or some more conversation about Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump had an interview tonight with Tucker Carlson, started five minutes before the debate and started at 8.55. I'm going to throw some numbers at you here. 8.55 when it started, there were 967,000 um, viewerships of, his, of the interview. By nine o'clock when the debate had also started, 10.8 million. By 927, 72.9 million and rounded out at 9.41 p.m. tonight with 73.9 million viewers. Those numbers are insane. He didn't need to show up to the debate. I'm impressed he actually stayed away from the debate, and he did exactly what he needed to do tonight. Now I'm kind of putting everybody on the spot because unless you have, uh, you know, um, a, a second person, there's there's just no absolute, absolute no way that anybody was able to watch the interview and the debate um, and pay attention on Twitter and, and do all the things we did before this podcast. But what what are our thoughts here? Can Trump win? Is Trump? Yes. Okay. Let's maybe if we all concede the fact that he is going to be the nominee, can Donald Trump win against Joe Biden or the Democrat candidate in November of 2024? Let's throw it. Uh, who who who's up here? Let's let's throw it to John.
3: Oh man, putting me on the spot.
0: You know um, I like to
3: look. Never say never. Politics is the art of the possible. Uh, I think that. Donald Trump could beat Joe Biden. Uh, I do not think that he provides Republicans the best opportunity to beat Joe Biden, uh, but that does not mean that he cannot uh, beat Joe Biden. Uh, And regardless of how you feel about him, uh, and this is something that I had to have uh, a number of conversations with folks about, uh, and yeah, I think it would be a mistake to say that he can't win. Uh, I don't think that the Democrats are going to uh, operate in a world where they don't think that he can win. Uh, I think that they will throw everything that they can at him. Uh, But I don't think that he gives Republicans the best chance to win. And I think that this is an important election uh, for us uh, to find a way to get some uh, guardrails back on the country, uh, preferably through the White House. Uh, Ideally, we could uh, get both of the chambers of commerce or houses of congress and uh yeah uh find a way it's been a long day with a one-year-old um (laughs) i'll leave it at that
4: (laughs) i'll agree with john and say that never say never i mean 2016 thought taught us that so I, i will say that um but i will also say if donald trump could be joe biden he would be president right now not joe biden um, and if Republicans thought he was a serious candidate and could take on Joe Biden in 2024, Ron DeSantis would not be running for president, Tim Scott would not be running for president, Nikki Haley would not be running for president, so on and so forth. So I think there, there is a serious problem. There are questions about electability and whether or not he can do it. No one, no one wants a repeat of 2016.
0: Representative.
2: You know, I I alternate my my two favorite podcasts right now, other than of course the the breakdown with Broadcore Aww. and Becky. Um, I listen to Charlie Kirk almost every day and I listen to Steve Dace almost every day. And the two of them are on the exact opposite sides of the the Trump DeSantis question. And so it's very interesting to consider their takes on a day-to-day basis. And ultimately, I think that they're both right. I think that Dace is right when he concludes. That Donald Trump is near unelectable. Um, not because of any political analysis, but just because of the 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 legal facts that I brought up earlier. The the fact that they're going to do everything they possibly can to make it impossible for somebody to cast a vote for Donald Trump, um, let alone let him win. I I also think that Donald Trump's gonna be the nominee. Like, I just don't think there's I don't see a path for anyone else becoming the nominee. And so realistically going forward, I think the focus has to be, you know, what do the rest of us do on um, those of us down ballot and those of us in the, the kind of activist commentator ecosphere, what do we do in light of that seeming inevitability? And the answer to my mind is we live faithfully with the mission that we have, which is to get elected in spite and to, Claim victories in spite of the fact that we are not necessarily going to have the most ideal candidate at the top of the ticket. Um, and you know, I would I would love to come back sometime and um, go into more depth in response to the two shows you guys did with uh, former gubernatorial candidate Scott Jensen um, and and some of the expert analysis you had in between there, uh, which I thought were deeply fascinating conversations. Um, but kind of the short preview of my my reaction to that, and I already kind of teased it out earlier. Th- this whole concern about candidate quality and messaging and how we appeal to independents and um, the suburban voters and this whole question of uh, coming across as reasonable and all of these things. I think what that speaks to is a electoral methodology that worked in the past it worked when election day was a thing it worked before all of the the soros inspired secretary of state changes to electoral laws especially in our state here of minnesota where now we no longer have an election day we have an election season like way more than a month right of people casting ballots and a big difference between 2020. And 2022 and 2024 is that in 2020 and 2022, the consensus amongst the Republican conservative ecosphere seemed to be that we weren't going to play elections by the rules as they had been changed and that we were instead going to stomp our feet. And I was as guilty of this as anybody. We're going to stomp our feet and we're going to complain about how it's all rigged and how none of this should be the way it is and we should do things completely differently and it should be the way it used to be when I was growing up and it was paper ballots and it was day of and you had to be there in person and by God, this is God awful. And so we're gonna defy all of that by not participating. Well, it turns out when you don't participate in elections, you'll lose. And that's what happened last year. 20% of Republicans in the state didn't vote. Um, you had tens of thousands of absentee ballots that were... Uh, requested and not turned in. Um, So I I go back to, I don't think the, the name at the top of the ticket is going to matter as much next year as it has mattered in the past. What's going to matter is the extent to which we take lessons learned from our operational failures in recent cycles and commit ourselves to the task of getting ballots into boxes. And specifically, getting ballots from people who would vote for us if they voted at all, but they simply do not vote. And when, when you break down what that task looks like, you know, this it, it takes a lot of investment in time, energy, uh, and discussion to convince somebody in the middle that they should lean towards your guy when they might just as likely lean towards the other one. It doesn't take nearly as much investment of time um, and money and resources to convince somebody who will vote for your guy to just do it. And if that becomes the focus next year, then it, it might not matter whether or not Donald Trump's at the top of the ticket. We might win anyway.
0: All right, Michael, can Bill, um, can he win? Uh,
1: I think Donald I think there is a path for Donald Trump. I think it's a narrow path. I think there is a path for Donald Trump to win. For anyone to say that he can't win, I think isn't providing realistic analysis. I think it's tough for him to win. The problem I have with Donald Trump's, if he is the nominee, and I still believe he will be, is it makes it more difficult for Representative Hudson to get more colleagues in the Minnesota House of Representatives. I think it's more difficult for Republicans to win and pick up opportunities. And so. I'm, I'm all politics is local, as, as Tip O'Neill said. So, if if I want Republicans to succeed in this state and I want Republicans to take, for instance, to control back the Minnesota House of Representatives, I find it very difficult to see how if Donald Trump is a t- is at the top of the ticket that he increases the likelihood uh, of Republicans picking up uh, the Minnesota House of Representatives. I think Donald Trump is an absolute cancer on other Republican candidates, and so I have a concern about that. And so. If I want Representative Hudson to get more Republican colleagues in the House and and give Minnesotans an example of what responsible leadership could be on the Republican side and help build towards winning statewide, I think Don I have to be an advocate. I have to not want Donald Trump to be the nominee because I think it makes it more difficult. To to Priya's point, I think it it, it Donald Trump's candidacy I think makes it more difficult for Republicans to win win back the the Senate, keep control of the House. And so we may get the presidency. There's a there's a real there's a narrow path for him to win. So to John's point, I agree with him that there is a pot. There is a path for Trump. There is a path for Trump to win. I think it is a narrow path. Uh, and that's just the reality of the race. Um, but but my my main point will be, I do think particularly in Minnesota, if Trump is the nominee, it's more difficult for Republicans to get a foothold to win statewide. And that's the concern I have.
0: All right. Well, we are past our 90 minutes, so we're just going to throw it into closing. I want to thank our panelists for joining us. I want to thank everybody for watching um, and listening. I'm going to throw it around the horn one last time. Uh, any final thoughts? And if you can also plug uh, where folks can find you, website, Twitter, whatever you want to plug real quick. Uh, let's, let's go around. Um, and Priya, you're up.
4: Well, thank you guys so much for having me on tonight. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, chatting with y'all about the debates and everything that happened tonight. Uh, y'all can find me over at K2 and company, uh, working with, uh, the great team over there doing political comms for everyone across the country, including SFA. So, uh, you can find us over there and, uh, check us out at, uh, check me out on Twitter at, uh,
0: Samson Dark. Thanks. All right. Representative Hudson
2: you can find me on twitter at walter hudson um, my campaign website is HudsonForMN.com. that's all spelled out hudson and my my final thought would just be uh, again kind of echoing where i left it that i think the most important thing going into next year is not going to be uh, the fun stuff which is arguing over who the best candidate would be in, a, in some theoretical um, alternative universe or arguing over what our, our resolutions or The content of her platform, or any of these things that activists love to argue about, the most important thing next year is going to be getting ballots into boxes, and that is the task that everybody needs to be committed to. Historically, uh, to Michael's point regarding future potential colleagues of mine within the Republican caucus, the the way that is going to happen is the same way it's happened in the past, which is by outperforming the top of the ticket uh, by having good local candidates who are running good local operations that get ballots into those boxes. That has to be the mission in 2024.
0: And John.
3: Thanks for having me on. It's been uh, fun to discuss and get a couple of different insights uh, on the debate. i um, hoping that the next debate that comes up is a little bit more inspiring. Uh, but it was uh, good to uh, kind of digest and talk about. Uh, and if folks want to follow, uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of content there, but at John underscore Rouleau, uh, for the occasional joke or snarky comment. Uh, and occasionally some pictures of barbecue. Uh, but thanks for having me on, and uh, we'll chat with you all soon.
0: Michael, any final words for our panelists or viewers or listeners?
1: I just wanna th- say thanks to our panel for for doing this tonight. This is our first live stream. This has been a real pleasure. I hope you guys will consider coming back. Uh, this was a great experience. You guys all, all of you offered tremendous insight. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, Becky you did a fantastic job running this uh, running this operation and, and, and moderating this entire panel I just want to thank everyone for for participating and, and we hope to do this again I hope you guys will all consider doing this again.
0: And I just got to, you took my line. I was going to throw it up back to Michael real quick. He figured out how to do this live. He figured out all the the graphics, how we can do this and stream across all the platforms. So mad props to Michael for making this happen. Um, we look forward to doing more things like this again in the future. Um, so with our closing here, we want to thank you all again for joining us at the Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky. Pretty sure we probably could have gone for another hour or two with many other topics, issues we didn't even venture into or touch on. But the good news is we'll have another handful or five of debates coming up in the next year and a half or so. So we'll have plenty of opportunities. To all of you who stayed up uh, to tune in, we are grateful. Thank you. Be sure to share your comments on who you think did well in the debate, who dropped the ball, favorite moments, tag at BB Break Pod. Continue to follow us at M Broadcorp and Allery RL. And thank you. Be sure to continue to listen to us, like us, follow, subscribe, give us ratings, all that good stuff. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.